The Money Answers Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answers Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to The Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he is a columnist at Barron's and Barron's.com, and he's just come out with a new book called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fails. Welcome to The Money Answers Show, Stephen. Great to be with you. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about your background, in addition to being uh, a columnist for, for Burns. Uh, tell us kind of how you got to where you are now. Well, I've, um, I've been fascinated with the markets and politics for most of my career and have been very fortunate to, uh, to be able to work in Washington, to be able to work uh, in the newsrooms, and then also spent a, a number of years on Wall Street working at uh, two major exchanges and helping to... Uh, uh, Modernize the U.S. options market, and all of this experience sort of added up and found expression in the book. So, why is there's so many books out there? Why did you have a need for this particular? What is something? We're going to go into detail, but what are the misperceptions that investors have that you're trying to straighten out with this book? Too, too many of the books, I believe, are dis, are, are get-rich-quick books, and I don't think that they work. And I think that people are so under the gun and behind the eight ball in trying to save for retirement and in trying to save money for the kids' college uh, tuitions, that they buy these things. And as a result, they oftentimes come away with erroneous ideas. The thing that I've tried to do in my book is to address what I consider, consider to be this, this massive disconnect. Because what I see happening in the market and, and what I hear is happening in the market from my sources oftentimes bears very little resemblance to what I hear portrayed or see portrayed. And so what I wanted to do was to give people a, a book that pulls all of these disparate, fragmented pieces of good investing together into one place. Like in my mind, I thought, like, look what the Marine Corps does with recruits at Paris Island. And I was hoping that my book, this is my goal, would give people that type of edge that, that I, I think they often have a hard time getting now. You say uh, a few succeed and everyone else fails. We're going to go into more detail again, but why in general do a lot of investors fail uh, with the way they invest in the market? Because they come into the stock market looking to, to always make money, looking for the next score, looking for the 10-bagger. And because they often have no discipline and they have no real framework for selecting stocks, they tend to fail. And if you look at the people that tend to succeed – they tend to be extremely disciplined and have a certain framework through which they can filter the uh, financial realities. Several of your chapters have to do with emotions, risk, uh, and fear, and greed, and so on. What role does, does emotion play, either rightly or wrongly, in the way people invest? Well, most people invest based on emotion, quite frankly. They like to think that they're being very rational, but... What happens most of the time is they just simply greed into the latest craze. They'll see something on TV, and they'll get very excited about it, and they'll buy it, or they'll, read it, they'll, or they'll see it on the cover of Time magazine, and, and they'll buy it, and they, and they get carried away. And uh, oftentimes they get carried away to, to the wrong place in the market. Your first chapter is about risk. Uh, what should people know about taking appropriate levels of risk or taking too much risk or how can they figure out what the correct amount of risk to take is and what's the best way to do that? I think there's a very simple rule 
in terms of in terms of setting risk, and that's simply like don't try not to lose money. And the thing that that's always sort of struck me, and I learned this I learned this when I was a kid, was that this very simple uh, trader's adage: bad investors think of ways to make money, and good investors think of ways to not lose money. And so, by sort of using that very basic metric, it's a good overlay for when you decide to buy stocks. Like for example. Do you want to buy a stock that is 20 t- trading below 20 times earnings or a stock trading at 90 times earnings? And what are the risks? It's just a nuanced way to identify the pitfalls. I mean, nobody says they want to lose money. <laughs> they all think they're being <clears throat> risk-averse, and they think what they're going into is safe and it's going to go up. How can they tell what the real risk involved in a stock? Is it based on their P-E ratio, or what are some things they should look for to truly I, I think evaluate the rule. Risk? Most people would be very well advised not to buy stocks trading at more than 20 times earnings. I think most people would be very well advised to look for stocks that have some type of of a dividend component. The dividend pays is re- responsible, surprisingly enough, for about 45% of all historical stock gains. And you want to make sure that there's a little bit of skepticism associated with a stock. For example... Do all the analysts who, who, who follow the stock have it rated as a strong buy, or is there a disagreement? It, I think it always makes sense to look for situations where there's disagreement, buyers and sellers, because that, to me, is often a sign of a healthy market. You said that we're a nation of stock market junkies. Uh, what's the evidence of that, and how does that hurt people who, who play uh, the stock market like a game? Well, I, I think the evidence is... Uh, that we're a nation of stock market junkies is it's very hard to go on, to go anywhere in your adult life where you don't meet people talking about stocks, thinking about stocks, or discussing stocks. Oftentimes they discuss the stock market. There are many places you can go, even in random airports, and the market's always turned to financial news. And the thing that always sort of strikes me is people ask me all the time, what do you think about the market? And I very rarely ever encounter people who are professional investors discussing the market. I hear them discussing stocks, but never the market. And it's the fact that we've become this sort of cult, this cult of equity has spread because in 74, when the tax code was changed to create the uh, individual retirement accounts, people have begun to walk up the risk ladder. People who, who, were, who would save money in the bank went ahead and did uh, IRAs. People who did IRAs went ahead and bought stocks. People who did stocks went ahead and did emerging market stuff. On and on and on. And once you sort of get bitten by the stock investing bug, you know, you're, you're, you're infected for, uh, and you want to keep doing it. And, and, and that's what, why I think and others think that uh, we've become a nation of stock market junkies. Well, even more so today because the yields you're earning on cash and FDIC is pretty much zero. It's going to stay that way for quite a while. So it seems to be an incentive for people to go into stocks because – the, uh, the risk-free alternative is, is return-free as well. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so I, I've been saying that the message from the Federal Reserve is, is that cash is trash. Right. And what are you going to earn? Maybe half a percentage point on it? Well, if you factor in inflation of, say, 2 to 3% a year, you're actually losing money. So many people believe, myself included, that the Federal Reserve wants people to climb out on that risk ladder and buy equities or buy other products that generate yield. And so the question then becomes, when you do that, what's the best way to do it? Is it to buy 
a high-flying social media stock, or is it to buy something that is a little bit more balanced and a little bit more understandable? I don't think there's anything wrong with a high-flying social media stock, provided you have a framework and a discipline to buy the, to deal with the, with the inevitable ups and downs. The thing that struck me while researching the book is I tried to figure out where did this whole idea of buy and hold investing come from. Mr. Buffett very famously has said that forever is his famous is his, is his uh, favorite holding period, but the fact is he buys and sells uh, stocks every single quarter, although it's not particularly um, uh, well reported. And as best as I can sort of determine, we went from applying this sort of metric, this way we people think about savings and putting money in, a, in the bank. We, we, we took that, and that was applied to stock investing. And in certain regards, that's fine as long as you buy and hold the right stocks. But we know from recent history, and, and data uh, even shows this, is that people don't always buy the right stocks. Oftentimes, they, make, they, greet, in, they greet into stocks, and then they panic out, and that's what hurts them. And it's that sort of cycle of boom and bust that I was trying to address in the book. You talk a lot in your book about uh, the media and watching CNBC and Bloomberg and all these kind of things. What is the right way that people should take what they're seeing from the media and have it invest, uh, invest based on that as opposed to being kind of dragged along with the, the highs and lows and all the emotions they're uh, hitting on all the time? I think the best way to use the media is to sort of use it as a giant sentiment gauge. And if the media is very bullish... It's probably a good sign in many instances for individual investors to be to be circumspect. Not generous, but circumspect. What most people don't understand, even though everyone talks about it a lot, is that the stock market is a discounting mechanism. And what that means is, is that the future is priced into stocks and bonds and credit default swaps and all of these things, six months out, maybe a year out, maybe further. But when people see things on TV or they read about it in the newspaper or they see it on the cover of a big national magazine, they think to themselves, holy moly, I've got to act now. And what tends to happen is the markets or the stocks get a huge inflow of money into stocks, into sectors, into ETFs, and it distorts prices, and prices become unhinged from the reality or the fundamentals. So the thing that people should do when they watch the media is is not, not to act on it, not feel compelled to act on it. They have to take the information and add it in, into their equation, into the fundamental research that they're doing. But the media, uh, Barron's excluded naturally, is oftentimes not a great indicator for buying stocks. Most people think the media is, uh, is a contrary indicator that you should do the opposite. Do you agree with that? Do I? Yes, I, I often do. I mean, I don't have a, a hard and fast rule with it because something that you read in a non-financial newspaper uh, is, could be different or a general newspaper could be different than a financial publication. But yes, I think if you were to go out and, and, and engage in the following experiment, watch a stock when it's mentioned in the press or it's mentioned on TV and see what happens. Usually it, it, the price increases as people come in to buy it because they think they have to get in on it, and then the stock goes down and returns to where it was. There have been some studies done that have shown that, that people would buy stocks in anticipation of people appearing on CNBC, and that the stock price would, would, uh, would edge up in the few days up to, the, up to and including the, the CEO's uh, appearance, and then as soon as he spoke, things would go down. The thing with the media that 
in financial news that's critical to, to keep an eye on is the media and the people they talk to, sometimes they get carried away. And I think that's the sort of the, you know, most investors, I think, need to just keep calm and carry on. You have what you call calm words for wild times. Uh, the wild times being the incredible volatility the last few years with the financial crises and, and so on. What are the, the calm words you have for these wild times? Well, the calm words I have for these wild times is that we're in a situation in which we always need to sort of be cognizant of the risk and the volatility. And the best way that people can manage the volatility, the easiest way, is simply by watching the uh, CBOE's VIX indicator. The VIX is a measurement, is often called the stock market's fear gauge. And if people watch that, that can be for them like a, uh, a canary in a coal mine. That's very low right now. Volatility level is quite low. So that's a, a reassuring sign is what you're saying? I'm sorry, say that again? The VIX is a very low level right now, meaning very low volatility. So there's very little fear out there right now. So you're saying that's a positive sign or is that a, a contrary sign? I would say that's a contrary sign. Most people are of the opinion. There's a saying, when the VIX is low, it's time to go. And when the VIX is high, it's time to buy. So when the VIX is this low at 15, which is about where it's at, it's a sign to be more cautious as opposed to being riskier. Now, when the VIX is very high, and during the worst of the credit crisis, it was almost at 90, many people moved in to buy. Why? Because they figured that all the bad news has been factored in. It gets back to the discounting mechanism. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he has written a new book called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market While Everyone Else Fails. Uh, and he is an, also a, a columnist at Barron's and Barron's.com. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he is a columnist at Barron's, and his latest book, his first book, is called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fails. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Great to be with you. You have a chapter on greed, um, so let's talk a little bit about greed. What, what is the motivating force behind greed and, and how people are going to have greed? What's the best way to deal with the greed they have as investors? So greed and fear, those two ancient things in the stock market. Everybody comes to the market. Everybody wants to make money. They, they want to live better tomorrow than they do today. And I think you have to recognize that. You have to recognize this native greed and come up with ways to tame it. Because if you don't, it will control you in the market, and that's a very bad place to be. So how do you do that? I think you've got to come up with disciplines. Some of the people that I spoke to in the book, including you know Ace Greenberg, was very had a very simple method. He says he buys stocks, and if they go down, he sells them, and if, he, if they go up a certain amount, he sells them. There's a, a fellow, um, another fellow told me that what he does is when he buys a stock, and this is I thought was fascinating, he knows when he's going to sell it. So he buys stocks for these very thematic reasons. He thinks that oil prices will go up or crude will do this. And when these things happen, he sells. And if they don't happen, but, he, but he's still convinced that his thesis is intact, he continues to buy more, and he waits. And what they do is, rather than holding a few months or, or a year, they try to hold three to five years, five years being the market cycle. And if things happen that prove their thesis wrong, they sell and they, and they don't get involved in any of these endless discussions with themselves about um, you know, do I hold on to it, do I try to earn my way out of, out of, the, out of the mess, they just sell. And so the greed then becomes uh, surrounded by this discipline, a, bu a buying discipline that I thought was fascinating and that I fear too many people lack. It is much harder to sell than it is buy because buying, you're, you're enthusiastic and you're hopeful. Selling is either uh, you've, you've lost, didn't work out, or you have to move on to some other idea. So what are some of the ways that people can learn to sell better? I think when people begin to buy a stock, they have to truly know why, why are they buying it. Earlier we talked about the media and the role the media plays in influencing people to, uh, to, buy, to buy stocks. So say, for example, you're going to buy uh, Verizon. You have to, it's a good idea, it's a good discipline, to write down on a sheet of paper, why are you buying it? What's the thesis for it? Are you buying it for the dividend? Are you buying it because you think they're well-positioned in the wireless networks? And then when you know why you're buying a stock as opposed to just greeting into it because the price has gone up so much, you're able to have a lot more conviction. And so there will, when the market turns against you, and invariably it will, the market could be down 200 points tomorrow and, and, uh, and be quite scary. But when you have the conviction and you have the thesis, it allows you to, to be a, a little bit steadier. And those are just very simple things that I think most people just don't do. You say that there is a value in making errors. What is the value of errors? That's how you learn. I, uh, some years ago, I worked for Sandy Fruster. Sandy Fruster is now the, uh, the vice chairman of the NASDAQ. And if we ever made a mistake, 
what Sandy said to us was, don't let it go to waste. You have to understand it. And a lot of this stuff seems like common sense, but the common sense we know is, the, is one of the rarest attributes in the stock market. Now, you know, Stephen Schwartzman um, at Blackstone, the big, uh, the big investment firm, is a fanatical about understanding mistakes. Now, he says that they maybe make 93% of the right decisions all the time, but there's still 7% that they lose. And so every time that his firm makes a mistake, it becomes a big, a big discussion and a big case study. They want to understand, did they value something wrong? Were they overcome by three or four events that they couldn't have seen or anticipated? And by doing this, then they run the information back into their, you know, back into their systems so they make better decisions going forward. It was a big mistake in his career when he first started out that almost took the firm under. And ever since then, he's, he's just been fanatical about it. And I think that's a, I found that to be extremely interesting. Now, the next chapter you have is about fear. So we just covered greed. Uh, what does fear do to people as investors, and how should they deal with their fears? You have to make a friend of fear. You know, the, the, the greed is a very, is a very nuanced, is a very nuanced emotion. And fear, fear is very sharp. And, and if you have a list of stocks that you want to buy, or you have a list of things that you want to do in the market, when the market corrects, and sometimes it corrects for reasons that have nothing really to do with the fundamentals, you want to use fear to buy. You know, we, we talked earlier in the first segment about when the VIX was at 90. Uh, that was towards the end of, uh, of 08, as I recall. It turned out to be everyone was afraid that, they, that the market was going to end and, and, and uh, fall into the sea. That turned out to be one of the best times in the past decade to buy stocks. When, when the market declines on fear, you can get great stocks at discounts. You have what you call the theory of contrary opinion. How is that? Uh, how is somebody supposed to use that when their their fears are coming up that the market's going to be falling? You know, that's a great question. The father of contrarianism, Humphrey Neal, he says that the public is right on the trend, but wrong on both ends. And so the, the way to use contrarianism is as a way of thinking. It's a way of always questioning, of always revisiting your positions on a daily basis or revisiting your investments to make sure that the thesis, the investment thesis, is still correct, as opposed to being passive. Many contrarians, you know, they'll see things in the, uh, in, in the media, for example, they'll see things on TV, and they'll look to do the opposite. And I think it's a way of, of thinking about things in a 3D holistic fashion. You use a particular example of John Paulson, uh, the famous uh, hedge fund manager, and how he used fear to make money. Explain how that worked. During, leading up to the crash, John Paulson was, was a respected but not entirely well-known uh, hedge fund manager. And he began to explore what was going on in the, mortgage, in the mortgage markets. How was it that people who had very little money were able to buy houses that they probably couldn't afford with their salaries? So he went around Wall Street to all the various investment houses and began to ask them for information on mortgage rates and mortgage on mortgage sales and also on housing prices. And everywhere he went, he found out, everyone told him, housing prices have never declined in the United States. And he went to all the big banks. And they finally said to the guy, like, you know, essentially, 
John, like, what's your problem? There's, there's nothing here. That he began to apply his contrarian uh, sense to this. And he said, well, how, do you, how are you calculating the increase in housing prices? And what he found out is, is that they only went back to around World War II, and all the numbers included inflation, which naturally lifted prices. So what he did with his, at his hedge fund is they took it back to around the, the time of the Great Depression, and they took out inflation. And lo and behold, they found out that housing prices actually had increased uh, you know, in, in the 20s and 30s. And lo and behold, he asking more questions, he found out that the process that they were using to value property and to extend credit was, it was incredibly flawed. And so what he did was began to amass a number of uh, rather sophisticated um, trades against the housing market, which ultimately paid off in a massive you know, multi-billion dollar payday for him, all because the man just asked a simple question, how are you doing this, as opposed to accepting it at face value, as so many people did. And it took a lot of guts to do result. that, though. Everybody's saying housing will never go down. It took a lot of guts to put a, a billion dollars or whatever it was on the other side of the trade. Right. You know, and look, this wasn't, in retrospect, these types of things always seem very easy. But this position, this trade went against uh, John Paulson for over a year to the point that he said that even his friends began to feel sorry for him. They thought he'd lost it. And then after a certain number of time, you know, after a year had passed, it began to be uh, evident that he was correct, and you know, and the payday was massive. So, what would be an example today of something that everybody agrees on uh, that you think is wrong, and it'd be better to go contrary to that? <laughs> Many people, uh, you know, right now they increasingly mention Apple. Oddly enough, you can't find any anybody. Anywhere in the world who doesn't love that stock, Apple is in this, is, is the unusual position of being all things to all investors. Growth investors love it. Technology investors love it. Dividend investors love it. And you're st I'm starting to hear now for the first time ever people beginning to question its rise. The stock now trades at over 600. That is a very risky thing to go against, but that's the type of dynamic that, uh, that one hears. We definitely take a lot of guts to short Apple now. <laughs> it would take a ton. I mean, it would take uh, it would take a ton. You know, and I'm not advocating uh, doing that. But here's the other thing. This is a, a there's a wonderful tug of war that goes on now. The stock market's up roughly 12 percent year to date, and the market is caught between those who have caught this rally, the big fund managers, and those who haven't. And I've referred to that sort of as the exquisite tension. And so you're finding many people now are coming out and they're trying to hedge against against a decline, and others are trying to position for further gains. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of money now flowing into the financial sector, which of course is one of the top sectors in the first quarter. And depending on how you how you trade or how you invest, there might be opportunities within there. Yeah. Okay, very good. All right, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he is a columnist at Barron's and Barron's.com. Uh, his latest book is called The Indomitable Investor, uh, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fits. We'll be back after this.
market's up or down. Or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he's the author of a new book called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market Where Everyone Else Fails. And Stephen also is a columnist at Barron's and Barron's.com. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Great to be here. Is there a, uh, a website or some way that people can find out a little bit more about the book? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Is, is there a website of some kind that people can find out more about the book? Well, yes, it's on Amazon.com and in Barnes & Noble. And I even have a blog out now called the Indomitable, IndomitableInvestor.com. Very good. Okay. Uh, one of your chapters is on what you call chaos. And uh, explain what chaos means in, in the investment world and how one can profit from it. Chaos is how I describe the so-called black swan, which essentially means that bad things can and will happen. Now, chaos or black swans, exists in that realm of the market called volatility. Now, if you can imagine uh, a globe and you can imagine the longitude and latitude lines, the longitude and latitude lines in the market are essentially volatility, and they can be tracked. And by tracking them or by tracking trading in various instruments like options, this gives investors ways to protect themselves against big, uh, against big corrections, which history uh, shows us occur every three to five years. They might not be as bad as what we just came out of in 2007, 2008, the so-called credit crisis, but they're out there, and everyone has to sort of keep an eye on them. So say the VIX is very low as it is now, um, and it's not predicting any black swans. There's no particular dramatic events people are thinking are going to happen now. How should you take advantage of that as an investor? What many people do two things. There's something... If you're not comfortable with options and hedging portfolios, what a lot of people are increasingly starting to do is to invest in these very sophisticated mutual funds that run what are called tail risk portfolios. PIMCO, for example, runs one, 
and so does BlackRock. And what these funds are designed to do is to, pr- to protect an investor's portfolio from ever losing more than 15% of its value. And they do this by buying index options on the Standard & Poor's 500 and, and hedging stocks. That's one way to protect against it. For investors who are more do-it-yourself and don't like to give their money to mutual fund companies, what a lot of people increasingly do when volatility or the VIX gets this low is it's an indication that there is no fear in the stock market and that the cost of hedging or buying puts that would increase in value if a stock or stock portfolio uh, decreases in value are inexpensive. And so many people can use the low VIX as a sort of green light to hedge against a future decline. You also want to talk about modern portfolio theory, which is a very well-respected theory on uh, how to diversify and so on. You're saying that that might be uh, missing in action or not valuable at all. This is a, a major tenet of Wall Street. What are you saying about modern portfolio theory in today's market? Uh, Harry Markowitz, the founder uh, of the modern portfolio theory, said that diversification is the only free lunch in the stock market, and that by owning bonds and different stocks, it reduced your risk of corrections. But when he came up with that theory uh, in the 50s and 60s, the financial world was, was much, much different than it is today. The markets weren't as interconnected. Things weren't wired together by computer networks and high-speed trading systems. And so after the correction, what we learned is that MPT might have some blind spots. And the big blind spot is something called correlation, which is that in a big crisis, everything behaves just like everything else. Bonds behave like stocks, and stocks behave like bonds. And so there's a massive debate right now on the street and and even in academia as to whether or not this is still the right way to do it. PIMCO, for example, believes that the – it might have – that. MPT or modern portfolio theory has its own shortcomings, and that's why it makes sense to essentially put a, a big stop loss order beneath portfolios of 15% or more. You know, back then when MPT came about, not many people really invested in the stock market. People still invested, save for their retirements, either through pensions that were guaranteed or in bank accounts. But now everyone's invested in the stock market, and as many people unfortunately are painfully aware of, a big loss, you know, relying on diversification as a hedge doesn't help much if you're getting ready to retire and you suffer a big loss. It forces you back into the market in, in, in a bad way. And that's kind of where the, where the MPT now is coming out. It's a little bruised. It's not discredited, but it's a little bruised, and people are wondering if there's something better. Black swans, by their nature, are not something you can predict. <laughs> but... What are some potential black swans out there now that people are not saying are very likely to happen that could have a major disruption effect on a market that's in general doing very well? You know, one of the major things is is war in the Middle East. What happens if Iran attacks Israel, Israel attacks Iran, or Iran attacks both of us? That could be a major thing. And some of that is factored in right now, and in fact, in the past few months, a certain Middle Eastern investors have been active at the New York banks going around creating these type of black swan hedges that would increase in value if such an attack occurred. That's one thing. Um, 
you know, a massive decline now in economic data, believe it or not, would knock this market for a loop. Because right now the market's climbing the wall of worry. Why? Because people tend to believe that housing is improving and the economy is improving. If either of those things should fail to, uh, should, should fail to, uh, to occur or to continue to be true, you'd see a massive reversal. So those are the main black swans you're looking for. Okay, uh, let's move on. You, you have a chapter, what you call Iogenes Lantern, uh, where you talk about fees and various other things that the investors not often aware of. What are some things to, to look out for, and what does that mean in the investor's contact of Diogenes Lantern? Well, Diogenes refers to an ancient philosopher who wandered the streets of Athens with a lantern during the day looking for an honest man. And I'm afraid that many modern investors are in a similar situation. They're sort of trapped between the underperformance of mutual funds and the overpromising of stockbrokers. And so they buy these mutual funds with, because they believe they're going to go up, but sometimes they do and, and, and sometimes they don't. But it's the fact that most of the funds fail to ever do better than their associated benchmarks. Meanwhile, they have their stockbrokers telling them, don't worry, everything's going to be great, buy this. And, and do that. And what happens is these people wind up paying a huge amount of money in fees to the brokers and to the mutual funds. And so a quick fix that can redirect an awful lot of money from the stockbroker's pocket and from the mutual fund company's pocket is to use ETFs and low-cost uh, index funds. There's, a, there's ample evidence now that shows those types of investments tend to be the best. And the results over time can be massive. So each each year you pay a little bit less in fees, and that adds to your return in the long run. Is what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's stunning. So if you look at 30 years and just sort of use that as, as the basic um, amount of time that people will be active investors and actively involved in the market. If you invested in a low cost mutual fund or ETF, for example, that charged you you know 0.15 basis points, just just a little bit more than a tenth of a percent, versus a mutual fund that charges 1.15 percent in, in an investment fee. And you track those over 30 years with the stock market returning on average 8% each year. The person who chose the funds with the lower fees had about $255,000 more than the person who chose the funds with the higher fees. Now, when you make these decisions and you look at the, at the funds, you think, well, what's 1%? 1% fee is not that much or 1.15% nothing. But over time, it's a huge amount of, it's a huge amount. And especially when you're retired and everybody could use the extra money. So starting now and being cost-conscious and managing your fees is one of the easiest, most proactive things anybody can do. And you also talk about hidden fees. What are some of the hidden fees of mutual funds? Well, there's the, the, the great hidden fee is something called the 12B1 fee. And what the 12B1 fee does, it's a marketing fee that most mutual fund companies charge. And so you would think that these mutual fund companies, which make so much money, could pay for their own marketing and pay for their own distribution. But what they've done is they've taken this fee, this 12B1 fee, and they've used it to compensate stockbrokers for selling their mutual funds. So when a, when a broker makes a recommendation, not only does he get a little bit of money back from the management fee, but he gets this sort of extra sales sweetener, this extra sort of bonus in the 12B1 fee. And that further takes money out of your pocket and puts it in somebody else's. You talk about having the uncomfortable conversation with a broker. What is that about, and, and how should one go ahead and do it in protecting your own interests? You know, well, most people, they, 
they just simply turn over the, you know, the bulk of their life savings to stockbrokers. And they never really have a conversation with them about what their background is, what their life situation is. Now, the head of one of the brokerage firms told me that the most critical thing that any investor can determine is if a broker works from the left or the right. He says, a broker who works from the left to the right works for your interest first and then his. But one who works from the right to the left thinks about his interest first. And so this is just like interviewing somebody for a job or interviewing a babysitter for your kids. You need to go in there and have an understanding of what the guy's experience is, how much money does he manage, is your account a big account for him or a small account, and how he answers that makes a difference. Somebody who's used to investing a half-million-dollar account might not have the experience to investigate a five-million-dollar account, and you want to know what their returns were last year. How did they do? You want to ask them, you know, how did you have clients positioned into the credit crisis? What was your advice during the credit crisis? And give them a chance to demonstrate their knowledge as opposed to you going in there and simply trusting them. The problem is that when people come to the street or they come to make investments, they tend to be a little bit intimidated and they don't want to ask questions that they think are silly or that they think might betray their own knowledge. But the fact is that most people just turn this money over with nary a second thought as to who they're giving it to. And I think the time for that has to come to a quick end. It's too late, yeah. Okay, you have a whole chapter on cycles. Uh, what are some of the cycles you find to be most predictive and helpful in investing? Well, Wall Street moves to its own to its own syncopated rhythm. You know, on Main Street, the year has 365 days, but on Wall Street, um, it's 200 and uh, 256 days. And so everybody sort of knows in advance what's going to happen and when. And each month tends to have its own particular personality. And by understanding these personalities. It helps us to make sure that we're buying at the right time and selling at the right time. Like January, for example, is always very, usually very bullish. It's the start of a new year. All the banks are out with their big forecast. You usually get a bit of a lift. February is kind of an in-between time. And March, it becomes like a truth or consequence time. We're getting ready for the first quarter earnings reports to come out. Analysts are updating the models. They're sort of marking to market all the good hopes in January against the realities now. Of March, and by understanding how these cycles pace trading in the market, it just makes you a smarter consumer. Okay, good. We're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. Uh, he is the author of a new book called *The Indomitable Investor: uh, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fails*. He does have a blog, uh, theindomitableinvestor.com, as well. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you're looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, 
Tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen Sears. He's a columnist at Barron's. Uh, his new book is called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fails. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Great to be here. You say that uh, overconfidence is a big uh, thing people have to watch out for. How does that get people into trouble, and how should they guard against it? People generally tend to think that they're better investors, and they know more about the markets than they actually do. And because of that, they wind up taking on a lot more risk than they need to. And as a result of that, oftentimes lose a lot more money than they would have if they were a little bit humble about what they were doing. And frankly, a little bit paranoid about what they don't know. So, so okay, so how do they do that? How can one, and without being frozen, how can one be paranoid and still go ahead and, and invest? I think you have to always ask, your, ask yourself what, what it is you know. Do you have all the information? You always have to make decisions based on imperfect information, of course. But you have to ask yourself, you know, Whitney Tilson, for example, who I, who I quote in the book, he has a little bit of a checklist. And I think it's a pretty surprising uh, checklist. You know, he always wants to know, is he trembling with greed? Does he feel that he has to act? If he feels he has to act, he simply doesn't do it. Um, is everybody, you know, bullish on the stock? When people are very bullish on the stock, then he himself finds, him, finds himself sort of stepping back. So it's just really a way of gut-checking yourself. You talk about creating your own private stock market. How do you do something like that? It sort of seems to be a side effect of this, of this modern world in which we live in. And so people become so confident about that which they think they know that they able, they're able to create their own stock market by finding information that confirms their points of view. 
So, for example, you can go look at a stock chart and somebody who wasn't so involved in it might think the chart looks bad, but if you're very bullish on it, you can think the stock looks good. Or you can only find news that supports your, your thesis and disregard news that disagrees with your investment thesis. And so the way to sort of battle it is to sort of put yourself in that position and always sort of seek out, you, you know what your reasons are for buying something and for acting, but you must always stress those reasons to make sure that they're still valid. I don't know so many guys who they act and they buy stocks and they buy bonds and they make all these decisions, but they always want to know what are they missing and why are they wrong. And so they spend most of their time trying to figure that out as opposed to trying to find things that tell them that they're right. They know what they know, but they're, they're most concerned about what they don't know. You talk a little bit about what happened since uh, Bernie Madoff ripped people up. I mean, that was a, a case where they thought they had something very solid that had no clues, basically, that it was all a fraud. What, what has been the impact of the Madoff scandal on investor psychology? It, it, it was quite significant at first, and everybody wanted to make sure that they weren't investing in a scam. But quite frankly, since the Madoff scandal broke and, and we were the first ones to report it in Barron's, I don't know that much has happened. You know, there's a, I included a story in a book where a similar scam occurred in Florida, of all places, which is where the Madoff scandal uh, was at ground zero. And it just goes back and it shows us that investors are so under the gun and under so much pressure to make money and provide for their own retirement that they get off balance and they do things that they know that in, in their normal life they would never do. Yeah, I think it's had a profound impact. People are very, very risk-averse because uh, they don't know if they can trust anybody about anything after Madoff. After he'd been doing so well for people for so long, they just completely hit them out of the blue in many cases. Your final chapter is uh, what you call Watchmen, What of the Night?, so what are some of the things people should be watching for that might come out of the night and, and surprise them? You know, the title really deals with, with the problems with the regulatory regime. I think a lot of people would like to believe that the, uh, the SEC uh, is keeping an eye on, the, uh, on things, but the SEC really reacts and Congress reacts uh, uh, to crises. And so what I, detail, what I call for in that chapter, and it's really a bit of a resurrection, is emerging of the Securities and Exchange Commission with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, in order to bring those two into alignment with, what, with the realities of the modern market. The fact is, is that the futures market heavily influences the stock market, but yet the SEC has no overview of the futures market. Net, net, what's that mean for, for uh, individual investors? It means that at any given time, nobody knows has a 360-degree view of what's happening in the stock market. And we talked about black swans earlier, things that are unknowable. Well, the flash crash of a few years ago when the stock market declined 1,000 points in, 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 20, uh, in 20 minutes is a key example and a key reason why there needs to be some real regulatory reform to better protect investors. So if the CFTC and SEC were combined to one agency, how would that make things better for investors? It would make the markets a little bit safer. It would make them more transparent, and it would cut back on some of the uh, what's called regulatory arbitrage of big funds or big banks playing the SEC and CFTC against each other in order to make it better for the big for the big firms and not so good for uh, individual investors.
So um, do you think, I mean, we've had the Dodd-Frank regulations come into effect here, which have all kinds of new limitations on financial firms as far as uh, doing proprietary trading and being too big to fail and all the new capital they need and so on. You, you don't think that's really enough to uh, solve the situation for any future financial crises? No, I don't. And, and I haven't really met very many people involved in it who, uh, who think it, it will do much of much. It's a simple fact of markets and finance is that money is like water. It rolls down to the lowest point. Dodd-Frank will do little to prevent the next crisis or make the markets uh, uh, much safer in the same way that the Sarbanes-Oxley did little, did little to make the markets uh, uh, safer for the credit crisis. Because what happens is as soon as these rules come into place, the, streets, the street is extremely adept at going to the place that's, that's not regulated. And until you combine CFTC and SEC, you're not really going to be able to, c- to control the terra firma in the way that uh, in the way that is needed. Okay. Well, in summing up, why don't you give people a sense of uh, once they get the nominal investor, what kind of a difference in their lives it could make to put the lessons we've, we've talked about into action compared to not doing so? Well, I th- what I hope that my book does is give people a, a sense of how things uh, truly are done on the street and how people approach things and the disciplines. Too often I'm afraid that people just, they greet in and panic out, and my my goal is to sort of give them a sense of how actually real people, real traders and real investors deal with those things to sort of break that boom and bust cycle. Indeed. I think the book does that very well. And again, tell them the uh, website where they can find out more about your blog. Yes, at the uh, indomitableinvestor.com, and uh, the book is, uh, of course, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, too. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Stephen Sears. Uh, his new book is called The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market While Everyone's Out Where Everyone Else Fails. And I appreciate you being on the Money Answer Show very much, Stephen. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.